welcome to another edition of the Various Artists Podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Barton, and I'm delighted to jo- be joined by one of my favourite human beings in the entire world. One of the most fascinating people anyone could hope to know. I'm giving you a bit of a build-up there, Charlie. Um, Charlie, bit. <laughs> Charlie Baker, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. And thank you. Thank you very much. Sure. Ditto. Oh, oh that's nice. Um, <laughs> And the the love won't stop because I've got some very sycophantic questions coming up. Um, Charlie, you know you're a jack and um, seemingly a master of all trades. You're known as an actor, and that's how you found your fame. But you've acted on stage. You're a classically trained musician. So if somebody asked you what you are, what you do for a living, how would you respond? I'm just people. <laughs> I'm just people. Damn it! No. Um... I, I would love it if someday people refer to me as an artist. Um, I don't think I've earned that title as of yet, but, but hopefully someday um, I, I will. Because I, I, I love all forms of art. Um, acting happened to be my foot in the door, uh, if, if anything, I hope. Um, but, you know... I'd love to be, you know, like you said, jack of all trades, master of none, oftentimes better than master of one. Um, so, uh, yeah, an artist, hopefully, someday. Oh, I'd go along with that. Um, you're from a mixed background, Charles. You know, you had an upbringing that was, in effect, poverty in some, some respects, and then relative riches in equal parts as well. I mean... You've had a difficult time being brought up by both parents, really. I don't want to, um, you know, I guess I should preface these points by saying I've worked with you as ghostwriter on your pending autobiography, so of course some of these things I'm going to know more than the average person. I don't want to give too much away um, in terms of what, what people will learn about you, but like I said earlier in the introduction, you're so fascinating. Um, you've also been a huge help with my novel Peach, not only helping with recording the soundtrack, but also in terms of taking part in promotional interviews and helping record those and doing this podcast as well. But beyond those things, more than you know, in our general conversations, um, you know you know, the idea of home is a theme in the book. So your childhood was spent around the world, and if anyone was to look you up, they would say, or it would say on the internet, that you were from Texas. So where would you say home is these days? Is it a place, or is it being with certain people? Uh, for me, it's always been with with certain people and where my family is and it, with the people that I loved or um, the people I thought I loved me at the, as I was growing up. Um, but for now, it's it's where my family is. It's wherever they are is, is my home. Um, right now, we are all in Los Angeles, and I'm really happy to call Los Angeles home because we all love it. Um, if someday I could convince my wife or had to convince my wife to move somewhere else, um, that, that would be our home. Uh, she's made it pretty clear that that's not going to happen. So it looks like LA is going to always be home, uh, at least for now. So, um, but yeah, uh, home is, it's definitely, definitely where, uh, where my family is because I've, I've tried to go back. I've tried to go back to places I lived that I thought was was home, 
and um, I was a stranger there, and I was I felt like a stranger. I felt like uh, I no longer belonged, and I um, I, I felt in, uh, intruding uh, upon the lives of the people that I used to know and that I used to uh, be involved with, and so. I'm, I'm much happier to be around the people I, I love. It's a, a weird concept because, I mean, not so this, well, I guess it is the same scale, really. I mean, I, I was born in a city and I moved to London for a while and then I moved to, to Manchester and I've, you know, worked in different places and everything like that. But you're right, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I lived in my hometown until maybe 2010, so, so for 28, 29 years of my life and but going back now, it's not, you know, if I think of home, it's probably the the last of the three places that I think of. Is, is that kind of, I mean, for you, it's a bit different because your, tra- your childhood was so, so much more transient than what mine was. So right. Difficult right. to, I mean, when you think of your childhood home, where, where is that? Is that Texas? No, we never had one. I never had a childhood home. Um, we moved, we, it was a military base a lot of times, um, at least when I was with my dad. And every military base, they, they kind of look a lot alike. Um, they have a lot of the, uh, similar layouts and um, the, the grocery store, the PX, and, and uh, the stores that you go to were all pretty similar. Um, the commissary and the PX. And so it was, um, there was familiarities everywhere we went, but it, there was never the same home. Um, we, we moved once or twice a year um, as in the military. And then my mother, uh, who was divorced from my dad when she was in, lived in poverty, she had, she had no real career, no... Um, worked two jobs and, and I was never told why we moved every six months or so, but I'm guessing we got evicted several times. And every time she got a new job, she'd moved to a new town. And, um, there was never, I'd never had a connection with a place in my life. It was always with the people, um, <laughs> that were with us. So I, I would, I don't even know what it's like until, until I was, 30, I had never lived in the same house for more than a year. And when I, my wife and I got married and moved into uh, the house that she grew up in, uh, that her parents had bought when she was born, she and I lived there for eight years. And I had never, never lived anywhere that long in my life. And I'd lived in Texas for for longer than that, but never in one place. Um, I'd lived in apartments across the street from each other, but never in the same house. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'd, I, I don't even know how that would feel to have a place. Um, our family, my dad had a farm in West Virginia that we visited summer every summer um, when I would visit him. And for a while, that felt like it was our home. But then uh, when my grandmother died, my dad and his uh, siblings sold that property. And last time I saw it, it was unrecognizable. And um, so 
it it ceased to become any kind of to be any kind of home kind of place for me. Um, now I did I I was raised in Hawaii for the first seven years of my life, and um, then you know thirty years later, my wife and I went back uh, on a uh, belated honeymoon, a much belated honeymoon, and. I had a sense, I had a feeling of familiarity with that that place that I'd never had with any other place I'd been before, and um, and it wasn't just the the views; it was the smells, uh, the feeling. Um, there was something really incredible about about that experience, but it was, that was, you know, from the time I was six weeks old until I was seven years old. So I guess in a sense, that was the longest, the other time I've ever lived any place for any long, any amount of time was on the military base in Schofield Barracks, um, in Hawaii. Did it feel, um, any different than from having that constant transience to being an adult at 30 and then you know, having somewhere completely settled. I mean, how did you feel after, like, say, six or seven months? We did you get itchy feet, or did you feel settled? I did. I did. I, well, part of like part of one of the results of the traveling every year of my life as a child is when I became an adult and was able to make my own choices. I had what um, what later I was told was was runaway syndrome. And any time I felt like I was getting too close or too attached to a place, I would move um, because I that was so it was unnatural to me to become uh, to to stay in one place for that long. And my first year with uh, first you know couple of years living with Rachel in this house, um, I I would I felt like. We, we should go somewhere. And what we did was we would, I had, one of my brothers had a, had access to a, a lodge uh, by a lake in, uh, in Texas that um, it was a, a, a camping community. Um, and so I would go and spend a, a week there. Uh, Rachel and I would spend a week there and just be away from the house for a while. And I, I learned that that, that was, that was almost as good. <laughs> Taking a vacation um, was was the, the only the supplement, um, and slowly I got to a point where I, I depended on being having that kind of stability, and I, I loved that kind of stability, and it was um, I couldn't believe I'd ever lived anything like <laughs> other than that before, and like this is how people like having the same house for the saint for all this time is, this is amazing. Um, and I, I literally, when we decided to move to LA, I cried. It was the first time I ever cried moving, moving away. I like, um, I took my dog for a walk right before he and I packed, packed into the car to drive away. And he and I walked around the neighborhood the last time and I had tears going down my eyes and I was, I was kind of blown away by that. And I wasn't sure how I was going to handle another move. Um, and then luckily we found a wonderful house in Los Angeles and we 
uh, we rent it. Uh, we would love to buy it if someday they let us, but uh, I doubt that'll happen. But um, we had, we're now talking about we're going to buy our, our first house. Here I am, 47 years old. Finally, I'm looking at buying a house, and um, and I intend for that to be the last time I move. Um, I may go visit other places for you know some extended amount of time for work or something, but I'm hoping hoping beyond hope that this is the last time I move is when I go buy this house, um, and fingers crossed. So. I've scratched the surface there, barely even really. In in terms of talking about, I call it a transient childhood, but people really need to wait to to read your story because it, I mean, uh-huh. it barely even, like I said, doesn't even scratch the surface. But I, I do want to talk to you mostly today about um, your creative life, basically, and I know that's basically been a prominent and dominant theme of your life from your childhood. I mean. In terms of your affluent part of your childhood, it wasn't ever really a contributory factor to your development. In terms of you weren't the rich kid who had, you you afforded all these lessons, so that's how you became talented. What I mean is you had a talent and a passion for entertaining that was not something which was taught to you. You just naturally um, fell into that. Um, so, so what are your earliest memories of performing? Well, um... Yeah, I think, I don't know, I I think we are all products of our environment. And I don't know that I was ever, um, in that sense, ever really given a choice but to be a performer. Um, I feel like I've always been performing somehow since since I was just to, uh, just as a matter of survival. Um, I, I was the youngest of four um, but I was seven years younger than, than my sister, who was the youngest, who was the next youngest. Um, there was a huge age difference and I was often uh, left behind. And, um, uh, so, um, I had to fight to get attention. My brothers were teenagers who were getting in trouble a lot. My sister was a teenager getting into trouble a lot. And I was um, kind of left to, me and my dog were kind of left to, to, to wander the streets alone. Um, but when I was about two or three, my brothers were on a football team, an American football team. Uh, and my sister was a cheerleader for that team. And I would stand off to the side of the cheerleaders and mimic their movements. And I'd even do like my own little two-year-old version of a somersault, you know, whenever it was appropriate. And that apparently got a lot of attention and so the team made me their mascot um and I, they gave me my own little my own uniform that matched their the cheerleaders uniforms it was, i just had red shorts and a white t-shirt and they gave me some red and white pom-poms um and uh and that it got me like i said it got me the attention that i desperately needed at that age and um it's uh, as I grew up the the emotional outlet that the arts gave me was the only one I was really allowed to have as a kid. I, I wasn't allowed to show emotion in front of my parents. Um, it was all smiles and happy, or else uh, um, <laughs> would give you something to not be smiling and happy about. 
but I was allowed to sing passionately, to, uh, passionately along with Engelbert Humperdinck or Roger Whitaker, um, and like just let let it go uh, without fear of retribution from them because they thought that was cute. Um, you know, me singing some mournful, depressing, lonely song out loud. Well, top no, of my... And by the way, for the benefit of people listening, when that these aren't flippant references to you know strict parents, you really have. To, I mean, I'm, and again, I'm, we are glossing over some of the things in Charles's story, which make him such a fascinating individual. But that really the dichotomy, the the, the contrast between the light and the dark in your life at these points really needs to be read to be understood really so I mean when, when you it's, said that you see, it was a release it re- I mean it really was the release wasn't it it was the only release it was the only way I could show joy it was the only way I could show pain it was the only way I could show sadness um, was if I was doing it <laughs> along with somebody else as for entertainment purposes. And, um, it it was, it was pure release for me. Um, and it was mostly, but it was just personal. It was a personal thing that I thought that I was, it was just, you know, me. Um, and it wasn't until much later that I realized like that the arts had the power to move other people emotionally as well. And once, once I saw that power, I knew I, I needed to have, have that. <laughs> um, From, I mean, those, those early memories of, of you of basically getting attention by being the clown, so to speak. Um, uh-huh. As you've said to me, you've referenced it in that yeah. terminology before. And, but that, that, for me, you always find... I always find that one of the most compelling things about you because I know that as an actor and as a, as a musician and as a performer, an artist, like, like we said earlier, you are deeply affected by material, whether, you know, wherever you join it from, wherever you join that inspiration from. So when when did you re- reach that? I guess it's an emotional maturity where the difference, where you understand the difference, where performing becomes more about the meaning of the material than it was about entertaining. When, when did that come for you? I I imagine it must've been pretty early for for you. Well, I think the, the actual realization came way later. Um, for me, like I say, it was instinctual in order if I wanted, if I needed somebody to help me, I had to perform for them. Um, and I had to really like sell it in order for, you know, my mom to believe I was hurt or my dad to, you know, to accept that I was scared or whatever. I had to really, um, really bring that kind of, um, it wasn't just about entertaining. It was about like getting people to empathize with me so that they would, they would go along and help. Yeah. Um, I have, I've heard stories. I don't remember them very well. And my, my sister would tell stories of how I would go around to the neighbors and like at lunchtime, because my mom hadn't made lunch or hadn't fed me. And I would just go to the neighbors and say, Hey, I'm hungry. And, and you make me a sandwich, but it, I would have to, 
I'd, I'd have to sell that and like, hey, I haven't really eaten anything today. And, you know, that was, it was a performance for me, but it was, it wasn't always just um, making people laugh. It was, it was making people, um, influencing people, um, emotional, uh, um, emotionally influencing people in a way. But like I said, it wasn't until much later that I, I learned how, uh, how I learned the power of um, more than just to to entertain people or could be used to influence the way people think and feel about things. Yeah. Um, you were an army child, so you spent some time in school in England in the 80s. What was your experience in terms of the arts? I mean, that was a, it was a very... I mean, I guess all decades have their own thumbprint, yeah. but the eighties is very. The the UK have got a really strong thumbprint for for their identity in the eighties. So, what right. was your experience of that? Right. Oh, it was the best ever. Um, I uh, I loved living in High Wycombe, and I'd taken the train to London every weekend. I was, I I joined this class. It was a, an, an elective class at our boarding school that I was in um, called Humanities. And our our professor would take us on a bus every weekend into London um, to see a show. Um, and the first one we went to see was the original cast of Les Mis. Uh, uh, and, like, um, I was... Here I am. I'm, I'm, I was a punk rocker at the time. I was rebelling like crazy at this time, and um, I'm, I'm wearing this white trench coat, Sex Pistols T-shirt. Uh, I have my ear pierced with safety pins um, in my ear that I just I used them to pierce my ear and just left them there. And um, and I had this, you know, full spiked mohawk, and I'm sitting in the middle of the middle of the floor seats of of this beautiful theater. And Cole Meany, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 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 Cole Wilkinson is uh, belting out "Bring Him Home," and I am sitting there, and this audience full of, of um, some very uptight, rather wealthy-seeming British people uh, looking very uncomfortably through their little spectacles at me as I am bawling, just tears are just streaming down my face. And um, uh, it's uh, I mean, that, that was the actual moment that I realized the power um of how being on that stage could affect people. Um, and that was, I mean, it was like, it was a true like cultural awakening for me. I, I spent every weekend in London going to see shows like um, Starlight Express, Phantom of the Opera, um, some black box theater that was just incredible and some, some black box theater that was not so incredible. Uh, a live musical version of Animal Farm. Uh, 
and I sat in the Lord Mayor sat was sitting behind me and and uh, <clears throat> at that time and and things like that. I went to Prince Albert Hall to see Hamilton from Sia with and Prince Charles and Lady Diana were in the audience. You know, um, it was it was just it was the most amazing thing in the world for me. Um, I, I just I loved every minute of it. <laughs> what are your memories of it back in in the US? Then, because I mean, I said that the UK had its own sort of eighties identity, but the US yeah. did as well. I mean, there was a it, that was a time when music and television were really combining for the first time. Yeah, in yeah. Um, well, you know, I was in I was in Texas, and I before England, I had very little exposure to the arts. Uh, my brothers did summer theater works tech for a summer theater, local theater in Texas called Casa Manana. And we had a few, they had a few like kind of big stars come in and do shows there. And I got to see shows at in every now and then there, but it was, it was amazing and cool, but it was nothing compared to what I had in London. Um, after I came back from England, I got a job at a nightclub. Uh, uh, called Caravan of Dreams, where uh, it was a small um, a small venue that housed hosted rather big named acts to come in and do kind of unplugged uh, personal kind of concerts. And um, my job at that place was to serve the artists backstage in between sets and before and after the show and that was like my real first uh exposure and connection to like people in the actual business like being up close to them and um being around them and uh and so it, it started to build and um at one point after college, I was studying music, I was studying theater, and I took a look around at all the people that I knew and all the friends that I had at the time. I didn't have any family to speak of um, anymore, and not one single person I knew was involved in the arts in any way whatsoever, and I just, it was an epiphany. I was like, I had, I knew I had to change that. Um, and uh, so I started seeking, seeking out more artistic people. And I, so I started going to school. That was when I started going to school and I started taking music classes and I started surrounding myself with more people who had the same um, passion and interest. And then things kind of exploded for me. And I started really, really seeing how uh, different uh different styles and different understanding, different um, lay, layers and nuances in performance and uh, in, in the arts in general. Yeah. So. I've got some good questions about that coming up. Well, in my opinion, a couple of good questions about that coming up. So let's talk about your um, childhood influences. Like you said earlier, you were the youngest of four children. You had two elder brothers. So how much of your musical taste was influenced by them growing up? 
uh, a lot. I mean, um, you know, like I said, my brothers, my oldest brother was 10 years older than me, um, almost exactly. And then my other brother, Jim, was nine years older than me. And, um, and so they introduced me to you know, the Beatles and Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and uh, you know, Peter Gabriel and like, so many other like great musicians. And then my brother Jim taught me a few guitar chords. He taught me the first guitar chords I ever learned how to play. And then I, I built from that. And then my brother Cal... He introduced me to like Edie, Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians, and then um, when his he he moved to LA for a short time while I was we were in Texas, and uh, he was introduced to George Winston, who was a, a, a New Age pianist, and brought back his George Winston's December, which is one of the, it's, it's an album I've listened to since I was eighteen, and still listen to every. Every holiday season, it's my holiday album, and um, at the age of, like, 40, 45, I finally decided, hey, I'm going to try and learn how to play some of George Winston's music on the piano, and was blown away to find out that I could, um, you know, uh, and so, yeah, they had a huge influence. Um, my brother Cal was, wasn't a performer, but he was, he was an aficionado. He, he, he was a music lover, and um, his passion for just introducing music, and he would just, he'd invite me to get into his car and drive me around the block just so I could listen to a great song, um, and then drop me off and say bye, <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was huge for me. Who were your um, movie or television heroes growing up? Uh, uh, I, I was raised by television, and, so, and that's a long story. Uh, you know, mom, I just I was raised by a single mom who who was um, working two jobs. I was a latchkey kid, so I woke up, watched TV, went to school, came home, watched TV, went to bed, and so I was like, uh, 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 the, the real point is, I admired pretty much anyone and everyone I saw on TV or films. Um, but if I were going to like go through a list of some of my favorites, uh, I, Peter Stout, Matt, Peter Sellers, Danny Kay, Red Skelton, Red Fox, Bob Denver, who was you know, known as Gilligan, um, Don Knotts, Marty Feldman, Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor, Sherman Hensley, Dudley Moore, Bruce Lee, Chuck Norris, Ricky Schroeder, and of course my first doctor, Tom Baker, um, who probably was had much more of an influence on my life than I really, really have acknowledged to this point because his name was Baker and he was an actor, and that um, that meant a lot to me for some reason. Um, and you know he was the doctor, uh, so yeah, I had a lot. A lot of of influences growing up, and um, I loved I loved the physical actors, the character actors, um, and at the time those those were the guys who transcended stereotypes. Um, they they were they played all kinds of characters, and um, I loved the characters that they played. Yeah. Uh, I'd hope that I could be one of them. <laughs> um, 
obviously your major rise to fame, and now you may well be known to most who listen to this podcast, is either as um, Skinny Pete on Breaking Bad, or the subsequent role that you got as Grey on the blacklist. On, I guess on the back of, of that success, you, you transition to fame, or the idea of it is one of the most compelling parts of your story from, from my point of view. Because I feel that period is so compelling in your story, and I've heard and seen you talk about it in other interviews. But I wanted to ask something different than one, what I've asked before and what I've seen you ask before. I mean, you must have expected at least a little bit of local fame, at least when you began acting, when you started getting roles on shows like Walker, Texas Ranger, which was, as you've said to me before, that was a sort of, not not exactly a gold standard, but everyone who acted in Texas would be on Walker, Texas Ranger. But you went from that to having a role on arguably the biggest show in TV history with Breaking Bad. It's a jump that nobody can predict or prepare you for. So how did you deal with your concepts of fame based against the reality of it in the period when, when Breaking Bad was on the screen? Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. Somebody, not too long, it was a couple of weeks ago, someone um, tweeted about how excitement is not happiness. It's a form of anxiety. Um, and that was such a relief to me, is I was really, really wondering what the hell was wrong with me. Um, I thought that essentially achieving all of my life goals would bring happiness um, that filled that hole that hadn't been filled by like all the other great things that were going on in my life. And what I found was that it just brought more anxiety and that was something I really didn't need anymore of my life. Um, and so I, I had to learn and in learning how to be happier, more to the point, how to be content with where I am, with my new place in life. Um, and, you know, because of the very fickle nature of this business, it's, it's a process and it's a very constantly evolving process. Um, I really don't know how um, how I'm dealing with it, or how I have dealt with it, or if I've dealt with it in a healthy way at all. It's it's so surreal um, because it's 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 kind of an illusion, and it's it's so it comes and goes so quickly and for uh, so unexpectedly. Sometimes um, it's just it's. Uh, it's hard to really grasp. Um, Were you, you know, prepared I, for the anxiety? Did it come no, out? No, I was not. I thought I thought the anxiety would go away. I thought, and I didn't really realize I had as much anxiety as I had. Um, but I thought that it would like make everything relax because ah, I've done it. Okay. But then I, you know, I started doing it and then I realized, wait, I have to do it again. Now I have to keep doing this. And this is like, I, every time I get a job in this business, it's a one in one million chance that I'm going to get it. And the fact that I keep doing it, you, you eventually think, well, you know, you can just trust the fact that you're going to get work again, but you really can't. You, I mean, 
yeah, I may work again, but is it going to be in time to pay my bills? Is it going to be in time to before I run out of money from my last job uh, to to make a difference when it comes to feeding my kids? And um, and so it's a constant, like you know, what do I? How can I keep working in this business? And the fight of. Um, wanting to have a personal private life, but knowing that being, putting myself out there for people to see and to, to be in on social media and communicating with people and letting them a little bit into my life is really important to building a career because, um, social media is a huge part of, of, uh, of, being a, an actor in this in this day and age, um, and so finding that balance of how much of my life am I willing to put out to people? What can I say, and what shouldn't I say on Twitter? And how can how can this particular phrase? How could this hurt or destroy my career? And we just saw recently how how one stupid <laughs> one stupid tweet can cost not just you, but hundreds of people a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and luckily I don't have the inclination to, to, to say really stupid, obnoxious, horrid stuff to people. Um, but you know, there's always the, always the, you know, what if, what if somebody takes what I'm writing here, what I'm saying here wrong yeah. and, Here's what they want to hear. That and what if that goes viral? And if that goes viral, and bunch enough people believe it, because people like to believe what they want to believe, and not necessarily what is the actual truth. You know how how is that going to destroy or help my career? Absolutely. And constantly. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, I mean, the the reference that we're making, um, I guess is rolls on for for those who. Yeah. For, for whenever this podcast is, whenever anyone listens to this podcast, yeah. talk about Roseanne's tweet. But that's an interesting thing to me then, because, I mean, Roseanne is like, for want of a better phrase, considering the, the context of everything that, that, that her career's going up in flames about, is she was a national institution to, for some respect. Do you know what I mean? She, she's been on television for 30 years. Do you know what I mean? She, yeah. she would have... I guess she would have been tweeting from this place of relative comfort. Do you know where she was mm-hmm. feeling that she was buffered by, you know, nothing could affect her in that kind of way that it did. Mm-hmm. I mean, for you, I mean, you're, you went yeah. from, from working in Texas, like, like I said, it was the biggest show in TV. It wasn't, you haven't had this gradual thing where you've been on television for 30 years. Um, but in one of the, the longest running shows and you've got that established thing, but you did have, you have had this period where, for example, Breaking Bad wasn't a fireworks show. It wasn't something cap, um, capitalising on, um, you know, like a, a reality TV show that capitalises on something that's happening right now. And then the, you have these stars that everyone knows now and then in a year nobody will know them. Whereas, you know, you, you did have this period of time where, and I guess it's still going on because Breaking Bad's still so accessible and so, still so popular. Yeah. Would it, is it easier for you that, that it happened like that, or would you have preferred a minor 
more minor show to sort of gradually get in, you know, more minor roles to get introduced to it a bit more slowly? Or is it better that you sort of had this big thing to deal with all at once? Yeah, it's it's impossible to say what, what would have been better if, if, you know, I know a lot of actors who have resumes longer than my arm who um, haven't really made very much uh, progress in their careers. Um, and so uh, Breaking Bad, the one thing it did was catapult me into into the public view to where I was getting the opportunity to try stuff I'd never been able, wouldn't have been able to do if I hadn't have been on Breaking Bad. Um, I, I mean, it's like, it, it would have been cool to have a slower build up to a role like that. Um, but I, I, I wonder, you know, if it would have benefited me much um, it might have, I might've, uh, um, but then again, I may have been a little more, <laughs> now that I think about it, I may have, I may have felt a little more protected had I been and not been as, as cautious about my, my place on Breaking Bad while I was doing it. Um, I, I felt like my role, uh, was constantly hanging by a thread, um, from the way the producers and and uh, the casting directors were were approaching my contracts, um, I, I for the six years we were shooting that series, I, I felt like this sort of Dam- Damocles was just kind of hanging over, waiting to waiting to drop, and um, <clears throat> and I feel like if if I would have been a little more secure in my career at the time, I may not have been as um, diligent about uh, <laughs> avoiding that sword. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so it, it could have been, it could have gone either way. Um, it's, you know, from a personal standpoint, um, Breaking Bad was wonderful to be on, but at the same time it, it made further further uh shows really hard to to judge fairly because everybody wanted to be breaking bad and you know you could just look at it and go it's not gonna be and that's not gonna happen for at least another decade you know that kind of dynamic in a show because it's a once in a lifetime kind of thing um as much as we can all want to hope there'll be something else as big as that coming out next week. Um, it's not. Uh, and so it's like, it's kind of like, well, now what, (laughs) now what do I get to do? I mean, how can I top that? Um, I can, I can, yes, I can utilize it. Um, I can, I can grow with it and grow from it. But I'm, I can't really top that, <laughs> as far as I know, so far. Um, you've, um, on that point, I mean, you faced a traditional issue for actors in that you became typecast for a while, and possibly, I mean, you still have to grumble about being that way after such a 
I mean, it was a significant and prominent role in Breaking Bad and such a distinctive character as well. So I guess it's a double-edged sword in that, I, you know, you hear people talk about being typecast, but I've never, I don't think I've ever really heard, in, in terms of, I mean, they complain about it, some actors, but I don't think I've ever heard an actor say that they regret being typecast. So what advice would you give to an actor who might feel as if they are? Is there a way that you can avoid it? I, I, I mean, or, or is it something that, while, would you almost advise someone to embrace it in a way? Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. I'm, yes, I, it's true. I'm not thrilled about being typecast as a drug addict, criminal scumbag. Um, but I definitely don't want to come across as ungrateful for the opportunities I've been given, um, even playing that kind of role. Um, that being said, I don't know I could give anybody advice on how to avoid it. Um, there are pros and cons to it, and I think it really just depends on what kind of actor you want to be and what kind of career you want to have. Um, there was this... Uh, great quote on this series on Netflix called Sense8, or uh, one of the characters who was an actor uh, was saying that um, being typecast is like prison for actors. And, and that's my personal view on the subject, because I'm a classically trained actor, and if I were to be really honest, I'd have to say that the reason I trained as hard as I did was to avoid being considered the kind of person that I ended up being typecast as. Um, <laughs> I grew up being told I would never be anything but a low-life scum. So the last thing I ever wanted out of my career was to be immortalized as the quintessential low-life loser. And I'm not sure there are plenty of actors with less emotional and psychological baggage than I who would love that opportunity. And I don't um, begrudge them anything for taking that kind of opportunity. There are some uh, cowboy types who love to play cowboys, and that's what they look like. That's the lifestyle they live. I put on a costume for an audition one time that was a look that I've never tried to look like in my life and spent and and that's you know i'm in the urban dictionary as the definition of that kind of character now uh, and you know uh i i wanted to be mozart i wanted to be uh something beautiful not not a druggie, not a scumbag, not especially not the epitome of a druggie scumbag, um, and uh, which is why I hope someday I get I'll get you know credited for that being an artistic endeavor as opposed to hey look they picked up a druggie off the streets and got him to say some dialogue. Um, yeah. for, for me, I mean, I'm obviously I'm in a blessed position in terms of I, I've got to know you so I you know again it may come across as slightly sycophantic for people who are listening but if anyone's had the opportunity to see August Falls and maybe not but I would highly recommend that they do that it's on Amazon Prime I think it's the US version but 
you could probably find a way of watching it in the UK as well. I got a friend who's got a US Amazon Prime account and I logged into it through that. Um, and you play um, a janitor who's slightly awkward, a little bit nerdy and reserved. And and I guess that's a kind of similar character in Eleven Eleven, a quirky, nerdy character. Yes. Yeah. Having got to know you over the last sort of four or five years, I, I get the that's if I were to ch- choose what I think is your typecast, that mm-hmm. would be it. Do you know what I mean? That's only I guess with the benefit. I of love it. that. I would <laughs> love that because that's what I. I mean, I'd love to be known as as um, fun and quirky and silly and goofy and. Well, not um, just that. I mean, the August Falls character is. I mean, you know that there's something. And I yeah. guess it would be the same. I haven't seen Eleven Eleven yet, but I guess it'd be the same kind of thing where you have this. Um, and it was funny because I was reading an interview with Daniel Radcliffe about this. He was talking about having that ability to be still on screen, yeah. where where the subtle changes in in your mannerisms make all the difference. And I thought of you when I, I read that because I thought, well, that's that is you. You concentrate so heavily on that kind of thing and I mean these are the things that often go unsaid don't I mean you would if we were watching a scene together of yours I know that that's the kind of thing that you would be looking for you'd be looking for that slight change in 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 the way that you're looking um although the way that you look at someone or or the the inflection in your speech or something in, in terms of how you would get that scene across where and that's that's the difference in terms of that's you penetrate the that character just slightly to get that kind of emotion, and that's the that's the danger of being typecast, isn't it? Because you don't get those nuances. People don't appreciate those nuances as much. Right, right. Um, yeah, yeah. It's um, people want to see. You know, it's like you go to McDonald's because you know McDonald's is going to have what you want. You know, if you're traveling across country, you go to the, you're in a town you've never been to, you, you go to Amsterdam. If you're living in America, you go to Amsterdam. I went, first thing, I went to Paris. I went straight to water, um, to Burger King in Paris because I knew what I was going to get at Burger King in Paris. I was going to get a burger, a Whopper, um, and French fries. And I knew pretty much how it was going to taste. And I was, I was pretty much right. It tastes just like the ones I got in the United States. And that's what people like familiar. They like to go, okay, I know, I know this guy. I know what he's going to do. I know who he's going to be. Um, and so I understand that. Um, but I want, you know, when you look at Gary Oldman on camera, when you see Gary Oldman's going to be in a movie, you don't go, oh, we get to see Gary Oldman be Gary Oldman. You get to see, you go, oh, I wonder who Gary Oldman's going to be this time. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's how you, that's the, the transcendence I'd like to, to bring. I'd like for people to go, ooh, who's he going to be this time? Not, hey, look, it's that drug guy character. Now we know everything we know about this character because we know this guy. And there are a lot of characters, yeah, you can do that. Like, like, oh, this guy's in it? Oh, we know who he's, he's going to be. He's the bad guy. He's going to be the one who does this. And, um, and like I said, there are a lot of people who, like, embrace that because that's, you know, they make their money off it. They don't take it personally. They didn't, they were, um, you know, didn't have to deal with that in, in real life. Um, but, you know, I think if, um, you know, 
Yeah, I think people without the, without the kind of baggage that I have about that kind of, of character, um, you know, I thought, hey, Shakespearean actor, classically trained pianist, nobody's going to think I'm just a low-life scumbag. And I was wrong. <laughs> what can you say? I, I was convincing, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah, you were that. I mean, that's the way we said the double-edged sword on it. Um, like I said, I could be sycophantic. And I do uh, genuine listening to check out those roles because... I, I, I think you're capable of all that. I personally, but again, it is from a place of being sycophantic and knowing you as I do, that when you say that there's going to be something, where you're going to be in something, generally I'm like, oh, I can't wait to see what else this is going to turn out. Do you know, but, you know, I'm, that's with the benefit of, you know, an open mind. I'm more open. Oh, it's not really an open mind, is it? I'm, I'm based in the pro Charlie Baker camp, so... I appreciate it. You know, every time I try, I, I get cast as a low-life scumbag, I, I I try to find a way to make them different from the other ones that I've played. And it's like there's only so many different ways you can you can do these without becoming a, a caricature. And so it's it's really, for me, it's because I like to be different, because I like my characters to be different, to be typecast as that, makes it really hard for me to find... Um, find something new to do. Um, and really, the, the, the irony, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but the, the irony of it all is that the legacy that was left by Skinny Pete is arguably that, that, that massive moment where he's playing the piano, where you did bring that difference to the role, um, yeah. where he plays the piano, and it's, it gives him that depth of a character which, which completely rewrites the idea of him being this... This druggy dropout, you know. So you, you've got that mm-hmm. thing where you've got that that depth what you brought to him, and yet, you know, that's people. Yeah. People yeah. did look beyond it at the time, obviously, and that people do remember the character. I mean, particularly anyone who was a fan of Breaking Bad will remember it for that and think, "Oh my god, he was magnificent doing that." Um, and it caught everyone off really when the camera pans up and it's you playing and. And the story behind how that happened and, and the shot and everything is incredible. But it, it's just incredible that you, even in this role where you were typecast, you do have this incredible moment of moving away from that and showing your potential. Yes. And yet the irony is you wind back after after it's all wrapped and, and done. You know, that was a, it was a very calculated thing that I did in <laughs> essentially manipulating that that into the show um, in order to try and, and show the audience that, hey, look, this guy's something else. There's more to him than that. Um, and I, you know, I was, when they actually said they were going to do it, I was like, I was so grateful. And I, um, I had a lot of hope that it would like go, oh, this guy's more Fred Astaire than, than just, um, you know, Fonzie, uh, you know, let's, let's see what else he can do. And I went, yeah, well, you can do that, but that doesn't matter. We want you to do this thing. Um, and it was it really, it became a choice. If I got hired, my next job that I got hired, had it been a drug addict character, if I would have went and spoken the way Skinny Pete spoke and walked the way Skinny Pete walked and mimicked Skinny Pete every time I played a drug addict, 
I could make a career out of that. And they would just go, yeah, we want this guy. We want this guy because he's going to do that. He's going to do this. Um, I probably lost a few jobs where they wanted me to play that character. And I came in and I went, I'll play that type of character, but I'm not going to play him as Skinny Pete. And because I didn't give them Skinny Pete, they went, well, he can't do the job. Um, just because that's, that's not my deal. I don't repeat my, I don't like to repeat myself. And, um, but it gets difficult playing, you know, when you're, you know, have to play the same drug addict over and over again. At some point, you just go, I'm just going to do this as myself now because there's nothing else I can do with it except just <laughs> give them this. And once you've started, you know, just doing yourself as a character, then you're like, well, don't really, you know, they're going to hire me to do this. This is, this is like kind of takes the fun out of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, talking, about, talking about music in the, in the first of these podcasts I spoke to Pete Young, a singer-songwriter who effectively trained himself to play as we've said you know, you, you are classically trained as well as being a natural entertainer the question I asked Pete was if, I felt, if he felt that he had greater creative scope because he hadn't been limited by the knowledge of a teacher but I guess the other way of looking at it is you can have a great teacher who has such a different way of looking at things that you can even have the scope for your own creativity widened. So where, where do you stand on that? I mean, I, I guess you're more inclined to, to e e extol the virtues of being taught. Um, no, I'm, I, I really admire um, Pete's ability to have done that. And most of the things that I do, I'm self-taught. Um, Photography is one example I wanted to try and squeeze into this uh, topic because I, I I would I would love to photography is one of my my side hobbies and uh, it, a few years ago uh, several years ago I was showing a professional photographer some of my amateur work and um, and he put it in such a a great way. He said, you have what I would call a Swiss cheese knowledge of photography. He said, you, you, you got a basic understanding, but there's a lot of holes in it. And that's, um, like, like that's absolutely true. There's a lot of stuff I don't know. Um, but coming back to acting, you know, Uta Hagen's, uh, book, respect for acting. Um, the introduction of that, if you're an actor, please go read that. Um, I'm not going to pull it out and quote it right now, but she talks about um, it's not just, you know, if you have the ability to, for instance, you sing in the shower and you think you sound great in the shower, are you going to take a job singing at the Metropolitan Opera Um without any training, without any practice, and they want you to come sing with the Metropolitan Opera tomorrow, do you feel like you would be capable of doing that? Um, most people would say no, just because, you know, I'm not a trained opera singer. I just really sound good in the shower. You could probably pick out, plink out heart and soul on a piano, but if they asked you to come play at Carnegie Hall with the symphony, you'd probably say no, 
because I'm not really a trained pianist. Um, and it's because you have respect for the art. Um, you know, but there are a lot of people who their moms tell them they're pretty. They did great in their high school play, um, at Romeo and Juliet. So now they want to go on and play Hamlet. And, um, and there seems to be a little respect for the, the craft of acting. Um, but without trying to sound I don't know, weird or stupid, like for me, acting, like I said earlier, was, is instinctual. It's an animalistic instinct for me. It's a survival instinct. And although I did pick up technique from my classes, what I really learned the most from some of my best teachers was how to be a professional. Um, and, and, and I think there's a big distinction there. Um, you can have all the talent in the world, but if you aren't a professional, um, you're going to lose your job. And uh, I think you know, recently we had cancellation of another show, Lethal Weapon, that I think really kind of points that out. And I don't have anything against Klain, um, the, the star of Lethal Weapon, who uh, was replaced on the show. They didn't cancel the show. They replaced his character because of unprofessional behavior. Um, and uh, so professionalism to me is was a huge thing. And so, like, I didn't really feel like I learned acting from college, from my acting college lessons. I learned how to be a professional, which... Um, which helps a lot. But as far as training goes, as far in acting, um, training is, is, it's a lot like driving. And when, when you, when you first learn to drive a car, um, you're, you're very conscious about everything you do. You know where your hands are placed, where, where the angles of the mirrors are, where all the knobs and gadgets that you use are all accounted for and you get ready and you drive and you are completely focused but then flash forward 10 years later after commuting to work daily um and uh you're a completely different driver you have one hand on the wheel there's your elbows hanging out the window you're jamming to your music uh, uh flipping the turn signal with one finger and just you know you're, you're a better driver than you were on your first day but you're you're not distracted by the technique anymore. Now you get to actually just enjoy your drive. And that's that's what the training does. It gets rid of having to think about the technique and gives you an opportunity to just let that animal go without worrying about am I standing in the right place? Am I facing the camera right? Am I blocking someone's light? Am I doing all this other stuff that is going to make their job harder um, uh, to, to make me look good uh, while I'm doing what I do. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's, I, I don't really feel like a lot of my teachers have given me anything as far as creativity goes, other than, helping me develop the, the technique and the muscle memory to allow me to unleash my creativity 
um, with full abandon and not have to, um, and not it, let it be corrupted by poor technique. Um, and by technique, is, you know, I'm talking about, you know, finding, finding your light, finding your camera, finding your mark, um, all the, the little things that, that you need to constantly be thinking about when you're first learning how to do that. Um, and a lot of those things you've taken from um, people that you've worked with, haven't you? I mean, yeah. I, you're a great, um, if anyone has a conversation <laughs> with you, you're a great person for the number of quotes that are in your head and the people who said them, the, the references are incredible. But and, and the anecdotes that you've got from people that you've worked with on set and obviously that you work with such a rich variety of talent people like you know you will say something that Bragan Cranston told you to do or even Johnny Simons who you work with in in back yeah. in Texas do you know what I mean so you don't um there's no hierarchy there really you, right. if, if someone said something that's meaningful to you you'll take it on board yeah. and that you take that and I guess in in a way Everything like that is part of education, isn't it? For, for, for right. what, how you take it on board. I, I always, I've, I never subscribe to the idea of taking a class, long-term class from a single acting coach. Um, I find those tend to be, for lack of a better word, cultish. They, they tend to become less about the craft and more about pleasing the person teaching that craft. Yeah. Um, and um, so I will, I will audit a class. I'll take a, a, you know, a, a seminar from a particular acting coach and I will take what I, what I need from them and what I can use from them and then leave all the rest at the door. Um, not everybody has all the right answers, and even if they have the right answers, they don't always have the right way of expressing them. And sometimes I've I've heard the same lesson from four or five different acting teachers before one of them finally said it in a way that actually made sense to me. Yeah. And um, and so I uh, I've always been a student of life, and that's I just took that into my acting career. I part of my part of my acting schooling came from watching um you know the actor's studio you know james lipton um uh, part of it came from just reading access you know reading entertainment weekly and watching interviews with that talking about what was important to them for them to know and to learn and um and just you know building on it and uh seeing what works and seeing what doesn't work and um and moving on uh but yeah i don't think uh, teachers i don't think they should have anything to do with enhancing or or stifling creativity they should they should be more about freeing up your ability to to unleash your creativity Talk about James Lipton a little bit. We're doing these ten questions at the end of the podcast. Oh boy! Um, <laughs> um, he's mentioned about life earlier. I wanted to talk about death for a moment. Um, I know that you know from the conversations that we've had over, over the last few years how, how big death is a part of Peach 
um, and in our time working together um, on, on your story, we, you know, you've unfortunately had experiences with death at difficult times, and at times you, when you experienced that, you were away from your family and doing work as an actor. I guess in your natural line of work as an actor, it's not really something you can just call upon. In terms of when you go to the well for resources of emotions, um, I mean, if you're working as a musician, I guess you can adapt grief into your work, but that's more as, you, as you're doing it and you're planning to do it. As an actor, it really does depend on the work and what it calls for at the time. And yet I do know from some of the conversations that we have had that you have sometimes used grief in your work as an actor and sometimes you've you've prepared to do that. Now, I, I was writing the notes for the podcast. I seem to recall that you were given some training or instruction on using grief in your acting. How, how do you do that? I mean, how, how difficult is it? Is it easy or is it difficult? And I, um, There is a school of, of thought on acting that that recalls your emotions that uses you know, your your traumatic experiences in your life I'm, I don't actually adhere to any of, of that particular style um, William H Macy once said if, if you're being true to the story if you're being true to the material if you're being true to the character you're playing if the emotion will be there if it is supposed to be. If it's written on the page, if it just says, person cries now, um, it's, that's really not going to you know, help. But if, if the situation that that character is in and the, the, the journey that you've been as an actor, you've been on playing that character, you get to that point and you're being true to that point, if it's something that would make that person cry, it's going to come whether you want it to or not. Um, uh, I actually try and avoid bringing my own personal emotions to the set with me. Um, I just, I feel like it's, it's it could be dangerous um, to, to mix your own personal, uh, uh, to purposely do it, to, to like, meaningfully like I'm going to hold on to this emotion until I have a chance to use it which I had at one point thought about doing until I realized I may never have that chance and now I'm never I'm never going to actually like feel this emotion if I don't feel it now um but uh like I said sometimes it's bound to happen I mean if the material that I'm working on hits so close to home um then I, I am going to use that because, because it's there. But I'm not going to dwell on my own personal experiences to make that happen. Yeah. Um, I'm going, it's mostly, you know, empathy for the, the character and the situations that I'm in that really bring the most emotion. And that's the only times I've really actually shown, emo like, true emotion on camera or on stage were moments that surprised me that I was not expecting to where I the situation and the scene happened in a way that that's what just made me made it happen the times when I've had to force it and to fake emotion for scenes because the director has said something like, and I've gotten direction like this okay right when you say this line I need a tear to fall from your eye 
And it's possible to do that. I can do that. It's not going to be genuine emotion, though, um, because nothing about what was done or said in that scene prior to that moment would cause that single tear. Nothing I can think of, nothing that I can bring will cause that for this moment. Yeah. But I'll I'll do it, but it's not, not going to be genuine emotion. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I think, uh, um, it's, I don't use my own grief in my acting. I, if my grief is triggered by the moment, then, then by all means, um, I'll take it. Um, one of my favourite quotes of yours, of, of the many, um, about music particularly, is that it's your favourite way to feel. Now, after you and how talented you were as a musician, uh, you are, I should say, I asked you to work on the soundtrack to Peach. Um, people listening to this podcast, if there's a very nice guitar solo intro, it's the, of one of the songs of the soundtrack, and I guess... Maybe down the line when the soundtrack's completed and already we might do another podcast to talk about the process of that. Um, I wanted to, though, before before going about that entire process or even reference in it in any small way, really, um, I want to talk about your favourite soundtracks from movies. Um, I want you to tell me your favourite. Oh, um, you know, soundtracks can make or break a film, in my opinion. And, um, and usually in such a subtle way that, like, nobody really ever even notices. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I worked as an editor, and while I was doing some World War II documentaries, I was just playing with background music just to see, um, you know, how it changed the dynamic. And I was amazed to see how, um, without changing anything else, just changing the music can... can completely change the way a scene feels, how it flows, um, the speed, um, the dynamics. Um, it can change an edit that didn't seem to work right and suddenly make an edit that didn't work right work right if, if the music is right. It's amazing the effect music can, can make. Um, and, uh, but, like, yeah, some of my favorite soundtracks um i don't know if you ever saw the sean penn i am sam uh sean penn and uh dakota fanning um which is the entire soundtrack is beatles covers and it's just amazing then there's uh great expectations which was uh in 1998 with ethan ethan hawk and uh gwyneth paltrow um that has an incredible soundtrack. That's one of my... I, I still have a playlist of, of that, <laughs> a lot of those songs from that soundtrack playing on my, my phone on a regular basis. And uh, Zach Braff's Garden State um, had another just really, really mellow, like laid-back um, soundtrack that really really kind of kill it and, as, and of course Gardens, Guardians of the Galaxy would be your your best recent example of, of a soundtrack that just like it wouldn't be the same movie without without it um, Cameron Crowe always seems to get his spot on as well doesn't he 
no matter what Cameron Crowe does, his, his soundtracks are always perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then as far as, like, television, um, you know, David Porter, who, who did the sound, um, I guess he did the music uh, coordinating for Breaking Bad, like, amazing stuff. I mean, I... I I, I, I use Shazam like every episode of Breaking Bad that I not every episode of Breaking Bad I use I use Shazam at least one point to find out what what, what song is that I got I got to get that I have a lot of the Breaking Bad soundtrack on my on my phone but um and I also have uh, Sons of Anarchy had a killer soundtrack and then uh, this composer named Bear McCreary uh, wrote the music, most of the music for Battlestar Galactica, the most recent version of that. And it was like his music. And he does, he's, he does shows like all over the place now. Um, and like his original compositions for, for shows are just amazing. Um, you said about, uh, um, Dave Porter did the score for Breaking Bad too, right? So I'm not just the, the soundtrack. Yeah. So. Yeah, he did the score, and he was the music coordinator. I believe was the you know he he helped find the the great music that was used, and would you know coordinate that with uh, with the compositions that he he would add to it. But uh, yeah, the, the Breaking Bad theme song, um, which he used so brilliantly at the end of the series, the very, in the finale, sorry, spoiler alert for those who (laughs) haven't watched it 10 years later. Um, but in the finale, he used the full version of that theme song that just blew me away. And it was, I mean, six years of a, of holding on to that must've been just killer for him to go. Okay. I got this song, but I'm only going to play the first part until the end. Like whoa, the payoff that though. Was, the payoff is is what yeah, you get. Yeah, the payoff it? was amazing. But yeah, so there's yeah, I love soundtracks. They, um, and Peaky Blinders is uh, another one on Netflix that just amazing, amazing music for that one. Yeah, some good choices there. Um, mine are a bit more banal, like Rocky Four. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love the the example. I think I've told you before when we've talked about it. The Halloween, I'm a big fan of the Halloween films and John Carpenter when he first did it he did it without his score, with a famous score and he took it to um, a producer and it, it was basically just a movie, I guess it had the songs that were in it like Don't Feel the Reaper and everything, those kind of songs were in it but the actual score, the piano score okay. wasn't in it and the I think it was a distributor or someone and they just said it wasn't scary at all and then so he went away and then added the score, and the score is the movie. I mean, and, and right. that's so many times. I mean, when you think of Breaking Bad, it isn't long until if you're going through the the effects or the, the influences, what make it such a such a incredible, um, indelible program, really, in, in terms of how it makes you feel. Mm-hmm. I on that list, I, I on the list is is the score and the sound of it, and and the way that that makes you feel as well, because. I guess in a way, yeah. yeah. Even though your guy's acting was was outstanding, without the score, it's yeah. a very different show. So yeah, well, that's uh, you know what I love about film and television is that it's a collaborative medium. It's not it's not 
an art form. It's, it's a bunch of art forms that all work together to create the thing. It's, um, having a great score is no different than the cost, having costumes yeah. and having set pieces and having a camera and lights. I mean, it's, it's as much of the movie as the actors are. Um, and it sets the mood. It changes the mood. It, it gives those actors, um, more meaning and more purpose. And those, uh, most of those, I don't, I can't think of any movie that has a, a, a great soundtrack that would be that movie without that, that soundtrack. You know, Good Morning Vietnam. There's another another great one, but um, it, it would it wouldn't be the movie. It would be incomplete mm. because the soundtrack is is that's what makes it. Um, that's what gives it its edge. Um, yeah. And you can you can show those that a scene of somebody going like this at a curtain um, at a shower curtain and spray ketchup all over the wall without that ee, 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 ee. sound yeah. it's it's incomplete yeah it's the same for um, Spielberg's everything everything that Spielberg's done the, the, score. the best thing the best example of that ever is to go watch um, somewhere on YouTube you can find uh the Star Wars, uh, the end of the, the first Star Wars movie where they're, they're all having the big parade and the award ceremony. Um, someone posted that without any of, any of the score. And it is the longest, weirdest, most awkward <laughs> thing you'd ever want to see without having that da 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 um, behind it. Um, the whole thing is just creepy. Um, <laughs> so they they just they wouldn't be the they wouldn't be a final product without the music that they had. And yeah. bringing it full circle, it makes, I mean, we've talked about it's kind of fitting that we're closing out the podcast, talking about how all these de- different facets and various things make up um, make up a a single creative work really in term, terms of the like you said the collaborative efforts but as, as someone as, who has a number of different talents what what for you is the ultimate creative indulgence I guess for someone who, who tries his hand at almost everything that's a little bit difficult to, to choose just one but let's say you get just one in your mood right now if you wanted to be creative today what would be the yeah. ultimate creative indulgence for you but you know, it's it's kind of a long running theme that the next step for actors is to move into directing. Is eventually you get to a point where you're like, I can tell this story, uh, you know, um, and that's that's really where I, I want to head is to to be a director because, like I said, it's a collaborative effort, a collaborative art that requires a little bit of every kind of art and as someone who loves a little bit of every kind of art, I think, um, being a part of putting that together, um, with other artists, I've directed stuff on my own with, as my own crew, but putting something together with other artists, I think would be an amazing experience. Great answer. Um, I want to end by asking the 10 questions immortalized by James Lipton in the, in the, 
in the actor. I can never do that in the in the in the in the actor studio scene. <laughs> um, I need to find a better way of doing it. James, yeah. James Lipton's in the Actors Studio series. Um, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, the first one. What is your uh, What is your favorite word? Compassionate. Why? Um, it's 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 what. Wow, I wasn't expecting that one. Um, <laughs> I never asked why. Uh, it's what is needed more in this world it's what's needed from everybody and it's what it's really compassion is what what makes us all work together it's why we aren't out killing each other i think yeah um compassion i'll, I'll leave the whys off there now what, what, appreciate <laughs> what is your least favorite word can't See, now you got me curious. I'm, just gonna, I'm gonna ask you why afterwards. Because you say I can't do something. I can't do that. You can't do that. I've been told I can't do so many things that I've done. Damn. It's, it's negative. It's like. Yeah. It can't means I won't, in my opinion. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Passion. Other people's passion. Seeing seeing someone passionate about anything, whatever. What turns you off? Negativity. Yeah. What is your favorite curse word? Oh, there's so many. Oh, um, many great curse words. My favorite, my favorite writer, and this is it's completely inappropriate even for a curse word, but one of my favorite. Um, Fictional writers, I should say. Uh, comedic fictional writers? Wow, that's, I'm really digging myself into My other favorite writer, <laughs> Christopher Moore, who, who writes some really like goofy comedy kind of books, um, he, he coined the term fucktard. <laughs> and that's one of my faves. But it's, I mean, it's completely inappropriate, but it, it really has the right kind of like, connotations to it. It's like, it says so many things in so many ways. I say it's a great word. Um, great, great invention there by Mr. Moore. Yeah. Um, what sound or noise do you love? Children giggling. What sound or noise do you hate? People whining. Mm. This is a difficult one because, again, we've got uh -huh. the jack of all trades. What profession, oh, I... other than your own many, <laughs> would you like to attempt? Billionaire philanthropist sounds fun. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what, <laughs> what profession would you not like to do? Uh, mortician. Yeah, or, you know, morgue type work. Yeah. And, and, and ending on a real bone of contention here, but I'll just ask the question straight up. Yeah. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Where the fuck let you in? <laughs> no, no, I, I, probably, uh, I, my deepest apologies for all the suffering I allowed my followers to cause on earth without doing a single damn thing to stop it. <laughs> and that, that would that would be nice. <laughs> and um, 
<laughs> yeah. That, uh, <laughs> for, for those who aren't quite sure what Charlie means by that. <laughs> yeah, later, look, look it up. <laughs> yeah, look it up. Um, Charlie, thank you so much for your time. It's been... Yeah. Every, every chat with you is always enlightening and enriching yeah. for me, so having the, the opportunity to just have these kind of discussions always great. Um, we uh-huh. generally have these deeper meaningfuls anyway, don't we? So it's nice to right. get to get one recorded is good. Yeah, yeah, um, it is. Again, really can't thank you enough. And um, for anyone who wants to follow Charlie um, on Twitter, you've got your Charles E. Baker, um, yeah. at, at Charles E. Baker. Um, I think that's, uh, you're on Instagram as well. Yeah, Charles, tr- uh, the Charles Baker on Instagram. Um, kept stealing my name. Yeah, right. <laughs> I had to um I had to change mine that to uniform all mine to put my middle name in the initial. Yeah. I don't like my middle name so it, but it's yeah. there permanently now. Um, but at least mine's uniform. That's why I like I've got mine uniform right. now. Um but yeah, that's yeah, I've got one up on you. <laughs> right on. Right on. <laughs> uniform across the way um like i said later on in, in this podcast series hopefully i'll get a chance to talk to charlie again about the the soundtrack and everything like that um yeah. and he's doing a really great job so i can't wait for everyone to listen to that oh, thank um, you. and that's just about it um thanks for listening to the the podcast and we'll be back soon with another episode